All right. Going to be in 1 Peter 4 today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. We're looking at the, the second half of chapter 4. Now, I've mentioned Dr. Roark before. Uh, my doctorate's professor at Howard Payne University. He was uh, one of the hardest professors that I had had ever taken in my entire life. And that, that was in my uh, main degree. Even in seminary, Dr. Roark still stands out as one of the hardest. Uh, to this day, I remember the, the dread of walking into class on a test day with only a blue book and a pen and nothing else. Remember everybody knows what blue books are, right? Just, just, uh, it's, basically it's, a, it's a, a book that you take in and it's just blank pages for essays. And so his tests were complete essays, uh, essay tests. He would give us four questions and we would have to fill the entire blue book with everything we knew about whatever doctrines that we had been studying. Uh, we'd have to know the sort of relevant scripture references, the history of how they've been interpreted, and the way they were applied currently. Uh, and then we'd have to give our argument for which perspective we thought was correct. We had to have a, a reasoned justification for our view. We couldn't just say, well, I like that. We had to kind of tell why. Uh, which, I, I mean, I hated it at the time. I'm so thankful for it now, but I hated it at the time. Uh, it was it was incredibly overwhelming that that sort of you have to know everything sort of feeling. I was I was so ner so nervous sometimes that it was difficult to study. Uh, it's not that I didn't pay attention in class. Did uh, Dr. Warwick, uh was a slow, methodical speaker. That's kind of how he talked. Uh, as if he chose every word carefully. Uh, and, and, but then he would ask questions that made it all really interesting. Uh, but man, those tests were crazy hard. I did not ace them, I'll be honest. I was not good in that class. I was usually happy if I got a passing grade in there. Um, and, and Melissa reminded me, I had forgotten this, but she had to have a 95 to have an A in his class. It was insane. Um, part of what I learned in the process was that tests are difficult on purpose. They are meant to show both Dr. Roark and each student how much we knew about the subject matter. They're meant to be the proof of our knowledge to reveal what we had actually internalized. In a similar way, this is, I think, what Peter has been sort of talking about throughout this letter and in our text for this morning as well. He really focused on this very specific idea of tests and proof. So follow along with me as we read. We'll have to see what he has to say about it. First uh, Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a member. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And God bless the reading of his word. Okay. So the first thing that jumps out of the text, uh, at least for me, is the, that word fiery in verse 12. In the Greek, it's the word uh, purosis, and it means a burning or a refining. And this word was used primarily in terms of smithing and smelting back in that time. In other words, Peter was saying, don't be caught off guard when you find yourselves being refined. Staying with this metaphor, he meant that they were being made pure. He had already claimed that sharing in the suffering of Christ would lead them to cease from sin. Here he was reinforcing that with a metaphor that had been used before. First, by the prophets, as we see in Zechariah 13, 9, where the Lord said, And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. And then Jesus came along and, and sort of echoed that same idea in Luke 12, 49, where he used uh, the same metaphor, saying, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it was already kindled. Paul also made use of this in 1 Corinthians 3.13, writing that each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will not, it will be, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So all through the scriptures, this same idea comes up over and over again. And all, all that to say this, this was a widely understood metaphor in Judaism. Peter was using it of these Gentiles that he's writing to as well. They faced suffering right alongside the Jewish believers by this point. Now, we don't face this same kind of suffering. There are still Christians in various parts of the world who do face it, and we should be praying for them. But at least for now, this is not something that is a real part of our lives. That doesn't mean that it might not be someday, but it isn't right now. So what do we do with this right now? How do we apply it in our everyday lives? Well, if we stop to think about it, we face testing as well, uh, even if it's of a different sort. And our students face regular tests on a regular basis. That's sort of what I was hinting at before. But our lives aren't at stake in any of these tests, not typically. 
And we may not be in danger of losing our homes or, or being beaten or imprisoned or anything like that, but we do face very real consequences for our faith if we hold true to it. For example, at this very moment, the United Methodist Church is in the process of splitting over matters of faith and doctrine. Just this week, I read a, an article in the Associated Press about what the author termed the UMCs, the United Methodist Church's slow motion schism, their, their slow split as it's happening, and, and all the, the sort of craziness that comes with it. And I, I can't even go into it. It's, it's extensive. It's expected that of the estimated 30,000 churches in the United States alone, at least 1,300 will be breaking ties with the denomination and going a different way. And these are very real consequences people, of people holding firm to what they believe about certain issues, and it's driven a wedge in that church. This is just within the United Methodist Church or the church itself. We, we also face a vast number of people simply walking away from faith altogether. Many have termed this uh, deconstruction as people who once held Christian beliefs begin to question and tear down the faith that they grew up with. I have numerous thoughts on deconstruction. But I don't want to get off track because I can just talk about that by itself for a long time. Uh, if any of you are interested, ask me after church. We'll go to lunch. We'll talk about it. Uh, but for the purposes here this morning, I bring it up simply to make the point that just because we don't face active, life-threatening persecution doesn't mean the church isn't being tested. It is. We are. We face the temptation to split and to walk away. Or maybe just to drift out of the fellowship of believers. I mean, how many people have stopped joining us at some point and just never came back? I hear stories all the time about this. People that used to go to this church and they still live in this town. They're still active. We bump into them at the post office or whenever there's an event of some sort out at the post. But they haven't joined the rest of us in worship or Bible study in so long that we've lost track. And then there's us, the faithful, the ones here on a regular basis, the ones trying to live out our faith daily. Don't we face trials and temptations as well? Aren't we being tested? Because if what Peter said is true, if we are supposed to endure such things as a means of being refined and purified, and then we aren't facing any of that, well, that seems like a problem. So how are we being refined? How are we being purified? I'm not saying we have to have our lives, our homes threatened, but if we follow Jesus, and the world hates him. I mean, in John 15, 19, Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Now, this doesn't mean we should go out and find ways to make people hate us. That's not the point there. It means if we are living like Jesus and doing the things he did, it's going to cause conflict with everyone who has a vested interest in living their own way. Because the way of Jesus challenges people. As we read in John 3.19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The whole purpose of us being refined and purified is to make us more like Jesus. And as that takes place in our lives, as we give ourselves over to the Holy Spirit, the light of God shines in us. And for some weird reason, people doing their own thing and living their own way don't like that very much. Doesn't mean we're better than them because we aren't. The light shining in us is not from us. It's from the Spirit. Which means none of us can go around acting like we earned God's grace. But when we're open to the Spirit, our lives are changed. And for those who are living contrary to the way of Jesus and His kingdom, this change serves as evidence of our claims about Jesus. And it marks a distinction. That can be very frustrating to someone trying to live for themselves. Just like it is whenever we try to live for ourselves. But that's why Peter wanted these believers to live and act differently. And to expect the kind of persecution that came as a result. According to what Peter said here, going through these refining trials connects us to the revelation of Christ's glory and brings us joy in the process. So how does that work? It's all about keeping our hearts focused on the end result. Not that we don't live in the here and now. We do. This is not an excuse for us to ignore our calling right where we're at. But the end result is this world made new. Our own resurrection and eternal life. The great wedding feast of the Lamb and the new Jerusalem. All of which happens when Jesus returns and is seen for who he is. As Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 9-11, through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. When that day finally comes, everything we have gone through for the faith will have been worth it. We will celebrate the revelation of Jesus at his return because it will be the vindication of everything else that we've gone through. Verses 14 through 16, Peter drew a contrast between suffering for evil and suffering for good. And he mentioned several ways to suffer for evil, most of which seem pretty obvious, right? A person could suffer for being a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer. All those seem pretty straightforward. 
They all make sense, especially in the Roman society where such troublemakers were dealt with harshly. But then Peter mentions suffering for being a meddler. And in the Greek, the word he used there, I'll probably butcher this, and it's alotri episkopos, I think. And it's a compound word from alotrios, which means something belonging to another person, and episkopos, which means a superintendent or overseer, like the Episcopal Church. In other words, don't try to supervise something belonging to another person. Or to put it in another way, maybe more contemporary speech, don't make other people's business your business. This kind of thing probably wouldn't have stirred much interest among the Roman rulers of the time. But it would have caused personal issues between the believers and the others. Peter wanted them to avoid such things. Don't be meddlers. Don't go supervising other people's lives like that. He wanted them to focus on living as citizens of God's kingdom. And if that meant a believer had to endure suffering or even death, it would be all the more reason to glorify God at the return of Jesus. As I've mentioned before, none of us face that kind of persecution, but we are, uh, sorry, but are we living in such a way that whatever suffering we do face for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom will give us all the more reason to glorify him when we are vindicated? Are we both proclaiming and embodying the gospel in ways that display the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus while challenging others with the truth? If not, isn't that a problem? I mean, aren't we here for that reason? Don't we have something to offer this community and the surrounding area? Now, yesterday, as I mentioned, I was surprised by a, a visit from Pastor Walt Galloway, who used to pastor here in the 70s. Uh, he and his wife, Michelle, were passing through, and he stopped off to ask if I would open up the church and sort of let them see. I was happy to do so. We ended up talking with them for the better part of the morning. And he told the stories of his time here ministering to this congregation in town. And apparently, uh, as I said, he's the, he's the guy who baptized Walt, Walter out of the post. Um, though he admitted he needed Walter's help on the way back up. <laughs> as we talked, I shared about how we are trying to extend the good news to our local students by doing this Sunday evening meal and thing, hangout, Bible study, whatever you want to call it. Um, and he kind of got choked up over the fact that this congregation is still here, still active, still ministering. And through his tearful reaction, he expressed that he felt blessed to be a part of the long history of God working in this place. And then he said that God's presence was still here, still active, that he could feel God's presence here, and still moving in the hearts of the people. And, and then he told the stories of different folks he interacted with during his time. And these were fascinating stories. One apparently wanted to kill him. 
Another wanted to know Jesus. And that's when this passage sort of became real to me as I was thinking through it uh, in a way that it hadn't before. Pastor Galloway preached the gospel and it divided people. Some people hated him for it. Others were drawn to it. Apparently he sat in a pickup truck with a guy who had a pistol and wanted to drive him out to the dump and then shoot him and kick him into the dump. Because people wouldn't stop telling him about Jesus and asking him to turn his back on alcoholism and follow Jesus. And this man was sure that it was all coming from the pastor and decided that if he killed the pastor, everyone else would leave him alone. He told me that as they were headed out of town, the man unexpectedly turned around and then came back and dropped him off in front of the sanctuary here. Now, I'm not asking any of you to try and make people so angry that something like this happens. I would rather not do anything that gets me killed. Just so we're, so we're clear about that. But, have we been so busy about the kingdom that the forces of darkness are that desperate? Have we been so busy telling people about Jesus that people are walking through our front doors here asking how can they know him? How can they be saved? If not, I think Peter has something to say to us. He said it in verses 17 through 18. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's us. The Greek word there is oikos. And it means household or, or sphere of influence in terms of family or, or a lineage, like a family line. Uh, it can even mean a nation in terms of a specific uh, people group or, or related people, like the Jewish people. And here, Peter's using it to call us the family of God, the oikos of God. Through faith, we are the lineage of Abraham. We're in his family line. So the judgment that began with these believers here, in the middle of the first century, it now rests on us. And it rests on us before it ever rests on anyone outside the faith. In our day, Christians seem to sort of have this backwards. As a whole, we are generally quick to throw down judgment on those outside the walls. Quick to point fingers and lay blame. Quick to call out someone else's sin while justifying or even ignoring our own. We see someone going through hard times and we think, well, they earned that. And then we go through hard times and wonder, why would God do this to us? But this is the thing. Everyone goes through hard times. Everyone suffers. That's Peter's main point here. God isn't picking on people. That's not what's going on. It's just that actions have consequences. If you touch a hot stove, you're going to burn your hand. Being mad at God about that is just silly. Peter was trying to encourage these believers and then by extension us to live in such a way that if we do suffer, 
however we suffer, it's for the sake of Jesus. That the consequences we face would be connected to our being passionate about the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom. To our being passionate about showing people the love and mercy and grace of our Savior and King. To our being passionate about being sacrificial servants to those around us, those in this town and in this area. Because if not, then the judgment that comes our way, <clears throat> the judgment that begins with us, will be that we did not live like the people of God. Judgment will be that we ignored what Jesus said and how he lived. That we dismissed the writings of the apostles in the New Testament. And maybe worst of all, that we will have failed the people that we have been placed here to serve. The people we are meant to love. The people who look to us to tell them about Jesus and show them his forgiveness. Because as Peter quoted from Proverbs 11.31, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Are we willing to sit idly by as people we know in this town, in this community, face eternity without Jesus? I don't mean to jump ahead, but 2 Peter 3.9, the apostle wrote that the Lord isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, are we right there with him? Do we ache for others to know him? Does it drive us? Does it inform how we speak and how we live? As Peter wrapped up his thought here before moving to his closing exhortations and farewell, he concluded that those who suffer according to God's will should entrust their souls to their faithful creator. I don't think Peter meant that God wants us to suffer, or that God is actively plotting and devising ways for us to experience persecution. But it is God's will that we follow in the steps of Jesus and that our lives would look more and more like his every day. And that will invariably bring us into conflict with a world controlled by darkness. So when it comes, however it comes, we shouldn't be surprised by it like students who were given a course syllabus on the first day of class, we were told about the tests. We knew what was ahead for us when we set out on this path. We may not always know how or when, but we do know why. And above all, we know who it's all for. So when we are tested, we can trust that the Father will hold us that Jesus has already walked this way before and that the Holy Spirit will go through it with us.
So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, may we boldly follow the path that has been set before us. May we endure whatever this world throws at us for following Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we ace the test. Will you pray with me?